And if you have a Bible with you, our text this morning and the entire semester is from John chapter 4. It's one of the most lengthy recorded encounters Jesus has with an individual. We're calling her the woman at the well. She's a Samaritan, an outcast, uh, both socially because she's living with a man. She's had five husbands. Her life is a mess. She's come to the well at noon when nobody gathers water because she wants to be avoided, uh, wants to avoid the crowds. But Jesus is there to meet her. And we read about this intricate dialogue between the two of them. And this morning I want to be like my daughter-in-law, Kristen. When she reads a story, she tells me she always reads the conclusion first. Kristen, why do you do that? Well, I want to know what happens to the main characters. I want to know that they're going to be okay in the end. So she reads the end first and then goes back and reads the story. We're going to do that with this. We're going to look at what happens as a result of the time Jesus spends with this woman. And it's verse 39 in John 4. Many Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Now, warning, this is a longer introduction than I normally have in my sermons. What do you call that? What just happened? I would call that setting things right. A city is being revived. It's becoming beautiful. It's what it should be. The evidence? They were asking Jesus to stay with them. They desire the presence of God, presumably to seek God, to know of God, to become like Him. See, because they have been spiritually awakened, God is getting the trust, the devotion, and the adoration he deserves from this city. The reason Becky is volunteering her time to help Wallace be at College Park Day is because College Park ought to be giving Jesus the same devotion, praise, adoration, and obedience Sychar did 2,000 years ago. And we call that worship. Jesus has reversed what is most wrong with this world, which in your estimation is what? Ask the average person you know, what's the worst thing about this world? They might say pollution, Unbridled greed, political corruption, murder, trafficking, lots of things we could say. And they'd all be deemed terrible from a biblical worldview. But in my mind, the thing that is most wrong is 
lack of worship. See, all the things I just mentioned are symptoms of a greater problem. What plagues this world is what plagues me, misplaced worship. God is worthy of that adoration, the obedience, the praise, the delight of all of his creatures, and he isn't receiving it. That's ultimately what's wrong with this world. And the fact that you and me don't think about that very often proves the point. Our greatest concern should be God receiving the glory he deserves. God receives the highest esteem in everything we think, say, and do. That his person is revered, his name magnified, his presence cherished, his reputation honored, and his grace credited for every good thing. They ought to permeate, beloved, our entire existence. And it doesn't. I know my worst attitudes, actions, and words come from a heart that is not in the grip of the glory of God. I know that anything good that comes from my life is ultimately the fruit of my heart being under the control of the spirit of glory and grace himself. And while we might not find this intolerable, Jesus did. He has come to right this wrong. Jesus came to earth because people were not giving God the glory due him. And this encounter with the woman is emblematic of Jesus' zeal to do something about it. It's not a stretch to say what Jesus was doing in his earthly ministry was gathering worshipers. He told this woman in the middle of the text, I didn't read it, the Father is seeking worshipers. I have a lot more to say about this later on. That's exactly what the Father is doing through his Son in this text, seeking a worshiper. And it's what should have happened everywhere Jesus went and revealed himself in word and deed. He was soliciting worship from human beings. The Apostle Peter tells you that this is, in fact, the goal of your salvation. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation of people for God's own possession. That you, what's the purpose? that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The goal of your salvation, beloved, is that you would become a worshiper. Okay, Mike, okay, okay. Connected to the woman at the well. Jesus is there to make her a worshiper. And to find worship in God alone, Jesus must expose her misplaced worship. What do we call that? Sin. Sin exists because worship does not. Sin at its core is always a failure to worship, to honor, to adore, to obey, to delight in, to yield to, to trust, and to enjoy Jesus. And so here is Jesus, love incarnate, seeking a broken sinner crippled by false worship, badly in need of true worship. You are too, and so am I. And Jesus would show her that the thing she lived for was a matter of worship, regardless of where she went to church or how sincere her belief was in her God. Worship struck at the core of her being. It was the defining factor of her and your entire existence. 
let me tease that out with two propositions. I've got a lot more to say about this in the weeks to come. Number one, that was my long introduction, incidentally. Number one, worship is your one only. So in this day and age, we know the phrase, you are what you eat. All the studies show us that how much what you consume affects your physical body, your health. That's why health-conscious people eat certain things and avoid other things. That Janice and I are in that category. The same can be said psychologically. You are what you love, what you crave, what you feel you must have rules your being. Whatever you think makes you whole, happy, fulfilled mentally or emotionally, that affects your inner person as much as food does your body. And Jesus captured it this way when he said in Luke 12, 34, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Where your treasure is, there's your heart. Where your heart is, is where your treasure is. Our hearts long for treasures, the adoring objects of our devotion and worship. This is why we can say, the drunk lives for his bottle. The despot lives for his power. The socialite lives for his respectability. The entertainer lives for his adulation. The sloth lives for his ease. The revolutionary lives for his cause. The playboy lives for his trysts. The materialist lives for his things. The glutton lives for his next bite. The people pleaser lives for his approval. The control freak lives for his dominance. The perfectionist lives for his performance. What does the Samaritan woman live for? Jesus exposes it with a simple command. Call your husband. It looks like she's finding security in relationship. She's got to have a man bouncing from one to another. He says, call your husband. She says, uh, I don't have a husband. Jesus says, right. You've had five and the man you're now with is not your husband. And she says, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Understatement of the decade, right? And the next thing she says is about worship. Our fathers worshiped here, you worshiped there. I'm going to get to all that subsequently in the fall. And fair enough, when you think about prophets, you can think about religion and worship. But I believe subconsciously her, her discussion goes from this man's a prophet. He knows all these men he's never met, but he knows all about me. She begins talking about worship because in her heart of hearts, she knows security in relationship is her functional God. Jesus goes with the flow. This is the root issue. And can I be fair? Every man in her life needs Jesus as much as she does. The point is you are a slave to what you treasure. You're under authority of the thing that your heart craves. The apostle Peter wrote, for by what a man is overcome, to that he's enslaved. Think about your life. What is it at the end of the day you give in to, you have to have? You're a slave to that. Maybe he's echoing Jesus' words in John 8, 34. He who sins is a slave to sin. 
that thing you keep doing. It's your master. Keep doing it. And you keep doing it. Translated, whatever you think you must have, that thing is your master, you're its slave, be it approval, control, money, productivity, comfort, security, pleasure, respect, fill in the blank. You're ruled by those things. So that's why the teenager lies to her mom and dad and goes out and gets drunk with their friends. That's why the person who fears loneliness will tolerate an abusive relationship. The salesman has got to be at the top of productivity so his family suffers, his health suffers, he steps on other people in this company because he has to be at the top. The athlete who, athlete who aspires to win the championship sacrifices everything else in view of the goal. Beloved, there's something, therefore, we all treasure most, and that's the thing we give our allegiance to. So I'm going to quote from a movie, the best picture of the year in 1980. If you've been in church for 40 years, you've heard preachers quote from Chariots of Fire. How many of you have heard illustrations from Chariots of Fire? Well, here I go. I couldn't resist. For those of you who do not know, Chariots of Fire essentially is a contrast between two runners in the 1924 Olympics. A sprinter for England named Harold Abrams, who clearly and unequivocally runs for himself. He is contrasted with a Christian named Eric Little, who runs for the Scottish team, who clearly and unequivocally runs for the glory of God. The movie is about a contrast between these two men, why they do what they do. It is phenomenal. Early in the movie, Eric and Harold Abrams run against each other in the 100-yard dash. The close finish, Eric Little wins. In the next scene, Harold Abrams, who runs for his own glory, is sitting, staring in despair at the ground. Sybil Gordon, his girlfriend, comes up. This is idiotic. It's a race you've lost, not a relative. Nobody's dead. Snap out of it, Harold. You're behaving like a child. I lost. I know. I was there. You were marvelous, only he was more marvelous. I run to win. If I can't win, I won't run. If you don't run, you can't win. So for Harold Abrams, winning is the ultimate thing. It is so defining to his existence that at one point in the movie, he's getting a rub down, and he reflects this way. He says, I look down that corridor four feet wide and 100 yards long and realize I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. That is a lot of pressure on a human being. Another one of his teammates reflected at one point, for him, it isn't just winning, it's life and death. And then finally, a teammate, uh, Audrey Montague, 
Harold confessed this to him. It isn't losing, I fear, but winning. Which means what? He fears getting the thing he most craves and then experiencing emptiness as a result because it didn't bring him the life he hoped it had. Profound statements. Now I want you to contrast that to Kurt Schilling. He's a modern day Christian, now retired, Hall of Fame baseball pitcher for Boston Red Sox. I'm looking in the way of my Boston fans. I was watching live on TV this years ago, and he had been roughed up in an outing in a postseason game. That means roughed up is sports language for he didn't pitch so well. And a reporter caught him outside the, outside the locker room, stuck the microphone in his face, just expecting him to be full of despair. Well, how do you feel now, Kurt? Here's what he said. You don't understand. Baseball is not the most important thing in my life. I am a Christian, and I have something greater to live for. Ten seconds to justify his existence, I have something greater to live for. Two ways to worship. That's the first point, what we can say about it. Are you thinking what it is? You look down that corridor and what for you is life and death? First point, worship is your one only. Second, there is only one to worship. Now, how's that for a fun play on words? Did you see that one coming? There is only one to worship. Why? A, he deserves it. Well, not A, he deserves it. That's the answer, he deserves it. And let me tell you three reasons why. Number one, he alone is supreme and he should be loved as such. He should be loved as such. God is, is above all. So the great commandment, Jamie brought it into our worship service earlier. Thank you for thoughtful worship planning, Jamie. First commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Deuteronomy 5, Deuteronomy 6, let's tease that out a little bit. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind. Absolutely, someone like God should be loved he, 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 with everything that you have. <laughs> Secondly, he has no rivals, and therefore we ought never to act, think, or speak as if he does. See, if I'm living or acting like I'm the center of the universe, that's a lie. It's making a mockery of the preeminence of God, kind of a cosmic treason. And we understand this in our culture. You don't have to be religious to understand this. We esteem the excellent. What do we do with our kids' scribblings, our toddler's scribblings, the artwork? What do we do with them? We take a magnet and we put them on the refrigerator door. What do we do with the works of the masters? We put them in art galleries. There is a world of difference between a world-class painting and what my four-year-old might scribble that goes on the refrigerator door. We get this. The excellent should be esteemed. And thirdly, God possesses greater value than anything, so we shouldn't value anything above him. Just like Antiques Roadshow. You know Antiques Roadshow. 
Somebody buys something at a yard sale for $10 or Uncle Joe's attic finds something and takes it to the, to the appraisers, the collectors, and two things happen at the end. There's a, like, a little interview, right? John found this thing. And the appraiser is gushing over it with envy and delight. And the person who now has this thing worth $10,000 they bought for $5 at a yard sale is guarding with all their life. This is what happens in the show. That is worship. Gushing over God with delight and guarding that worship with all your life because he is infinite holy, unchanging, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present, perfectly righteous, unsearchable, independent. You could go on and on and on, and you don't come within a billion miles of him, and neither do I. He deserves the worship, not us. And that's why God alone can stipulate the way he should be worshiped. We don't invent it. What do we call when someone says things about you that aren't true, we call that slander. When they write things that aren't true about you, we call that liable. And our laws acknowledge how unfitting and unjust that is, how much worse with God. So we worship God the way he tells us to. And I'll just give you three words as we close to look at that. And there's more to say about this in some future sermons. Ascribe, give to God, Psalm 29. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe or give to the Lord the glory due his name. Some of you have entered into relationships with financial institutions. You have borrowed money to pay for college. You borrowed money to pay for a car. You borrowed money to pay for a house. And you have an agreement. They've loaned you all this money, and once a month, a portion of that is due them. God has entered into an agreement with you as it were, but it's unilateral. He created you. You are due giving him glory and honor. It is due him. And so it's, it's no wonder you find this plethora of postures with which God tells us to worship him just looking at the Psalms alone. Can you wrap your mind around this? We are variously exhorted to stand in awe of him, bow down to him, give thanks to him, shout to him. What's wrong with Presbyterians? No, really. We're commanded to do that. Sorry, I am one. Praise him, serve him, sing to him, glory in his holy name, delight in him, exalt him, and not least, say how great is your name in all the earth. When you do that, what do you notice? You notice 
that the truth of who God is and the truth of who you are become wondrously aligned and you're never more human than when you're adoring Jesus Christ in word, thought, and deed. You see yourself never more clearly than when you're seeing Christ in all his splendor. You never have a better perspective on your life than when you have keen sight of the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And that's why true worshipers cannot curb their enthusiasm. Have you heard that phrase? Curb your enthusiasm. You're too enthusiastic. Park it. Down, boy. You see Christ in all his glory? You can't not talk about him. That doesn't mean you're shouting and screaming at people, as I am now. <laughs> Becky, and rightfully so, wants us measured and warm and controlled at College Park Day. Absolutely, we're going to meet people where they are. But there is a place for exuberant response to the glory of God. Anybody raise their hands in their quiet time? Anybody but me raise their hands in their quiet time? Uh, let the record show that somebody else does. Shucks, folks. Second, rejoice over. I'm just thinking of Psalm 32. Be glad and rejoice over and shout for joy to the Lord. Isn't that what you're looking for in your life, something to be glad in? Everybody is, religious and non-religious. You're looking for something to be glad in, a job, a relationship, a comfortable environment, a cause, a program, something to bring your heart gladness and joy. And see, God shows us in his word ample reasons to find him as the object of our heart's deepest affection. Look, for example, I think I've got it in the outline, Psalm 36. See if you see any reasons here to delight in him. How precious is your steadfast love, O God, that children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delight. It's essentially what Jesus is doing with the woman at Sychar. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. <laughs> Therefore, nothing short of the following is due God Jamie had you begin the worship service with Psalm 133. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that's within me. If I'm holding back in my blessing God, I am saying something untrue about God. I'm living a lie. God in Christ is either your all or nothing. Can't fool myself. And then one other word, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together, Psalm 32. What do you do when you magnify something? You make it bigger. I'll talk about this more next week. But God wants us to tell things to him about himself. Not because he doesn't know them, but because we need to know them. And worship sets things Right in our hearts, we tend to move the glory of God to the periphery of our lives. It's a little bit like this. Suppose you come out to go to work and, and there's been a big snow on your car. What are your, what are your instincts? Mine are, just do this as quickly as possible, you know. You see people driving down the road and like there's snow all over the windshield except where the wipers are. And you're like, do you, do you ever do that? I do that. Do you take the short way? Look, until you've gotten all the snow off the hood, right, that snow could blow up in the windshield. 
you've got her all off the top because you could break hard. That snow could coming down here and block your view until you've cleaned the side view mirror, this mirror, the back thing. You can't see, right? Worship is clearing away the snow. And you drive with confidence. God wants your life filled with confidence. And it comes from magnifying the Lord. And it produces a longing for Him alone. Well, let me back up. Look at the peace and confidence and joy that comes. Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? You see how practical that is? You have fears. I have things I'm afraid of. What is the only antidote? Seeing how big God is. Big God, little problems. Little God, big problems. I like how the psalmist Asaph in Psalm 73 shows how worship produces a longing for God alone. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, there is nothing on earth I desire. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the portion of my life. I want to be able to say that in my dying breath. God is the portion of my life. And I believe, beloved, as you establish a pattern throughout your life of daily worship, and then you come Sunday morning, and you vomit up all that daily worship into this assembly, you know when that happens, you'll see it. Every one of us, six days, worshiping in our prayer closets, and you bring your worship collateral Sunday morning, the race starts, and everybody, you'll see it. It's every preacher's dream. Last thing. You'll know your, your heart works the way it should when God is the one you long to see. Psalm 27, one thing I've asked of the Lord that I will seek after. One thing, a good job. No. A good marriage. No. Healthy, hearty kids. No. A fat retirement account. No. Health, strength. No. One thing I've asked, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. What a mystery. To see that the beauty of the Lord is revealed in a horrific cross. For Jesus Christ to come to earth to set things right, that's where we began the sermon. He has come to right the greatest wrong. God isn't getting the worship due him. Jesus had to suffer unspeakable torments of injustice to set things right. And it is at the cross we see in earth history the beauty of the Lord mysteriously. His obedience to the Father, to the last breath, obeying His Father. Resisting the temptation to call down angels to help Him. Resisting the, the drugs to help ease the pain on the cross. The beauty of Christ's obedience, the beauty of His righteousness. This was an act of righteousness. The beauty of his self-sacrifice and mercy. He's in the place your sins deserve. Never knew sin. The beauty of the grace of God dying for those who don't worship him. <laughs> the glory of Jesus loving you to his own death and peril and torment and shame. Excruciating pain. 
I was reading Psalm 22 in my devotions this morning, and it's quite messianic, although all the Psalms are, but the psalmist there talks about the pain of thirst. My tongue is sticking to my jaw. Jesus could have died of thirst and blood loss. The beauty, the beauty, the beauty of the glory of God in the cross. That'll change you. That'll make you a worshiper. That is changing the world. We've got more to say about it all. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you that you have come to this world to seek worshipers. You were doing that through this woman at the well. You're doing that this morning. You're seeking us to make right in us what is wrong, and that is we are not living to the praise of your glorious grace. Thank you that our hope is in the cross. Our entire failure to do this is forgiven. The beauty of Christ, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. What compassion, what sympathy, what patience, what mercy. Uh, May this cross grip our hearts. This precious Lamb of God be our one and only. Deliver us from our foolish, misplaced worship. Open our eyes to see more and more His glory. And we pray for His glory's sake. Amen.